the office holiday party. A generally rare event last year because of the pandemic. We'll see what's planned for this year. Right now, Target and Lowe's, the latest major retailers to issue quarterly reports. Let's see what they're saying. We're joined by Ken Perkins, research analyst at Retail Metrics, based in Swampscott, Massachusetts. Ken, it's good to have you on the show. Uh, let's, I, I guess we'll dig into each of these one by one, but, but overall, retail, how is it looking? Yeah, overall, you know, we're looking at a pretty good retail earnings season for 3Q. Uh, you know, we've got 100 chains in, that we track that are publicly traded. You know, the street was looking for them to just post flat earnings at the beginning of July. We're all the way up to 17% year-over-year growth with uh, strong reports from Walmart, Target, Home Depot, and Lowe's the last couple of days. And, you know, they're beating expectations by a wide margin. Uh, only six companies have missed. And, uh Overall, the numbers are coming in very strong, so we're uh, we're impressed. And you know, that's on top of last year, where earnings were up 20% in the third quarter. What you know, the COVID uh, really whacked the first two quarters of last year, but you know, the third quarter rebounded uh, with all the stimulus. So these are pretty good numbers across the board. Let's talk specifically about Target. Uh, what are they showing, and, and maybe what are they thinking for the holidays too? Is they're probably talking forward guidance. Yeah, sure. I mean, Target is amazing. Uh, one of the best-run retailers in the world. You know, they they beat expectations again this morning by a wide margin. Uh, earnings were weighed down a little bit by some heavy inventory expenditures. You know, they expanded their inventory 20% to be in stock for the holiday season here. And their same-store sales were up to almost 13% on top of 21% last year. I mean, these are astronomically great numbers. If you look the last 20 years, Target never posted a double-digit same-store sales increase in any quarter until the pandemic. And in six of the last seven quarters, they posted double-digit comps. They're gaining market share. Their commentary on the uh, on back to school was very strong sales. Halloween was record. And, you know, Brian Cornell, the CEO, said they see continued momentum heading into the holidays. They're seeing strong sell-through on early holiday shopping. Yeah, it just keeps on going. What about Lowe's? What are they saying? Yeah, Lowe's, you know, not quite as stellar, but still really good results. Uh, they beat expectations by a wide margin. Their operating income was up 27%. Same-store sales were up a couple percent on top of 30% growth last year. You know, a little slowdown as people are spending more on experiences now and a little bit less on the home, but they're still seeing positive momentum. Uh, high-end ticket items over 500 bucks. those sold, uh, those grew at an 11% clip in the quarter. They're gaining share in the pro business, which is really important to them, getting those contractors in the door. That business was up 16%. Uh, and they're seeing solid momentum uh, heading into the holiday season well, as well. Early trim tree sales have been strong. Uh, they've indicated as well as cold weather products, you know, selling out snow blowers and things like that early because of you know, concerns about supply shortages. You know, it's good. I mean, we want retail sales to be solid, right? Especially coming out of the pandemic. And yet, as we hear more and more about supply chain problems, not as many products on the shelves, it seems like this sort of retail reporting would mean inflation would continue in those areas. Uh, absolutely. I mean, inflation's a big concern. I mean, you're, you know, the, the NRF and others are projecting record holiday sales this year, upwards of nine to ten percent growth. But almost, you know, it looks like close to half of that might be due to inflation and price increases. Uh, so it might not be as robust as it appears on the surface. And it's going to be interesting to see if somehow some of these weaker retailers who don't have the, the buying power that a Target, a Lowe's, a Home Depot, Walmart have to bring in excess inventory and pay higher shipping costs. You know, are they going to be out of stock and really leave a lot of sales on the table? Uh, 
So as we go forward into earnings season, particularly next week, some of the smaller apparel players and department stores, you know, be interesting to see w- w- what their view is and what their inventory positions are here. Thanks for all the insight. Ken Perkins, he's a research analyst at Retail Metrics. Many company holiday parties fell victim to the pandemic last year. What is the trend for this year? Michelle Reisdorf is here, a Chicago jobs expert at Robert Half here in Chicago. Uh, Michelle, I mean, uh, you know, last year, most people didn't do anything. If they did, maybe it was a Zoom meeting. What are we seeing for this year? Well, it's, uh, it hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, you know, definitely 49% of professionals surveyed said they would prefer not to get together for some sort of holiday party. And really, you've really only got like not even 30% that are interested in kind of having that in-person celebration. And yet companies, they're, they're trying to do something for team building, right? As, as there's been a lot of people who've been a little frustrated, a little run down throughout the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it, it, part of our survey showed that really only 6% wanted to do even a virtual gathering with all the Zoom fatigue. And so, you know, managers definitely have to look at different ways to plan something to show appreciation for their employees. You know, some of the suggestions we've had are, you know, handwritten thank you notes or maybe using that holiday party money for a little bonus or gift card um, to still show your uh, employees appreciation for your end. Yeah, maybe one of the things that we learned during the pandemic is is for a, a quick meeting every once in a while, Zoom is great, but it's really difficult to be festive on a two-hour Zoom call. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think what you'll find is you'll have lots of pockets of silence and that, you know, fun festive gathering turns into something, you know, maybe that feels a little awkward. So unless you have something specific planned, I know last year our team did a holiday gift exchange on a Zoom meeting, and that certainly filled the time and was very interactive and seemed to work well. So if you are a smaller company versus a bigger company, are you maybe handling this differently? Possibly, um, you know, with less employees, you know, maybe your COVID concerns might not be as high for a gathering, but, you know, I think it's just difficult. There's a lot in the news right now about COVID numbers and, you know, either whether they're on the rise again or not. And I think it's just best for companies at this time to, you know, kind of still follow CDC guidelines and make the decision that's best for you. And you said earlier, I think this is an interesting idea, maybe just spend some money on some gifts. And it it doesn't have to be big, right, for employees to feel like they were thought of? No, not at all. Um, You know, I know last year we personally took our normal holiday party funds and we just sent a personal card and thank you note to each and every employee at least it was something they felt recognized and you know we got a lot of really great heartfelt thank yous back so something as simple as that will do the trick thanks so much michelle reisdorf a chicago jobs expert at robert half here in chicago just ahead another major project set for the red hot west loop money talks as the wbbm noon business hour continues developer sterling bay planning a major development in chicago's fulton market neighborhood let's get the details from danny ecker a reporter at cranes chicago business danny always good to hear from you so what's sterling bay doing well just to add another uh, project to their pile in fulton market uh this is a plan that was unveiled publicly for the first time yesterday uh for a what could be a two-tower um, apartment and office complex, basically, all the way on the western edge of Fulton Market, actually, the former Archer Daniels Midland uh, flour mill that Sterling Bay demolished this year. And uh, it could have as many as 971 apartments and uh, something almost 
almost around 800,000 square feet of offices. Uh, so just another really ambitious uh, proposal on the table for Sterling Bay, um, you know, the latest in a long line of them, and, and they're still doing a lot of other stuff in the neighborhood as well. What does this say about that, that Fulton Market neighborhood? I mean, it's been hot for a while, but it doesn't seem like it's letting up at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep telling people, you know, right now downtown there's there's Fulton Market and then there's everything else, uh, you know, in terms of especially the office uh, demand. Uh, we're seeing leasing activity uh, for new office space around there. Uh, that's really at the same pace or maybe even faster than we saw pre-pandemic, whereas around uh, other places in the central business district, it's there are some deals getting done, but it's they're, they're fewer and far between. So uh, it, it's this is the, the area where we're just seeing a lot of demand. And part of it is because you got so many restaurants and kind of lively uh, neighborhood uh, uh, going on there. And that's what people are attracted to right now. Yeah. And as that continues, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the the rent prices there. I mean, it's already hot, but as it gets hotter and you get to a point where you can't really do much more development, I mean, those, those costs are going to continue going up. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this this Sterling Bay project. This is the the western edge of the Fulton Market Innovation District that the city opened up to all this new development uh, several years ago. So, you know, we're, we're there's definitely more sites to be developed here, and we're going to see a lot more height in some of these buildings. I mean, related Midwest just broke ground on a 43 story apartment building there that'll be the tallest structure in in Fulton Market. I mean, there's a lot of development still coming here, but certainly the number of sites that are left to buy to develop are, are really uh, a small number at this point. And then does that trickle over into other areas of the West Loop and beyond uh, where, where you know, that, that sort of change just keeps going? Well, that'll be interesting to see. I think that'll say a lot about kind of the future of downtown overall. Uh, does does the development start happening even, you know, expanded West beyond Fulton Market into neighborhoods or do we see, uh, you know, really a repositioning of some older buildings in the loop and buildings that might have a lot of vacancy coming out of the pandemic uh, that need to be uh, redeveloped partially into some other uses as we kind of change into a post-COVID world? So th there's all kinds of uh, question marks uh, uh, hanging over downtown right now. And uh, Fulton Market just happens to be one area that uh, is leading the charge in terms of growing out of this. Well, that's a good point. The need for for maybe changing. There, there may be some companies that don't need as much square footage, which will mean landlords have to change how buildings are subdivided. Absolutely. I mean, you look at just LaSalle Street itself. Uh, there's a couple of major buildings on LaSalle that uh, one is mostly empty now, where Bank of America just moved out and they moved to a new tower on Wacker Drive. You're going to have BMO Harris. Uh, leave their space on LaSalle Street next year for a new tower next to uh, Union Station. These are big buildings that are in, in need of some serious renovation if they want to attract new office tenants, but it's probably more likely given the, the kind of uh, uh, debt, you know, really devastated office demand that these have to be partially turned into something else, be it condos or apartments or, or just some, some other use. And it's really unclear about what that use would be until we kind of get back uh, a bit of a clearer view of what's ahead. Thanks so much, Danny Ecker. He's a reporter. You read him online and in print at Crane's Chicago Business. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Markets are in the red. The Dow down 173. NASDAQ down 34. And the S&P down 8 points. Let's see what's going on. Brian Perry is here, senior editor at brianperryinvesting.com. Brian, what do you make of what you're seeing on Wall Street today? 
Well, we're seeing a, a lot of cross currents here at Cisco here. The market has a lot of moving parts that are prompting a lot of rapid rotation here within the 11 sectors that do make up the market here. And uh, certainly um, investors have had uh, to deal with a lot of different headwinds here, but certainly with the market still you know, trading very well, you know, whether it's been Delta variants, uh, another recent spike in Europe here, uh, supply chain disruptions are still prevalent all, all, at all the major ports, you know, large scale defaults in China with the uh, Evergrande uh, real estate company there, as well as, um, you know, the beginning of the Fed tapering, which is starting to happen here, stunning inflation data, and then a soft consumer confidence reading here last Friday or two Fridays ago. So uh, in light of all of that, the market still powers higher because there's just the world's awash in liquidity here. It continues to want to, you know, fight inflation by owning stocks. And today, uh, you know, we've got a down market here. A lot of that is uh, certainly weighed uh, on the uh, the downside because of um, a Visa here, which is down 13 points or 6%. Uh, they apparently the uh, Amazon is not going to accept their, uh, their their credit cards in the UK because of higher fees. That's really weighing on the market. But we've had a lot of things really work well here. Big cap software continues to to trade higher here with Microsoft, uh, Salesforce, things of that nature. Uh, the, the big names out there, Amazon's trading higher here. Adobe's been strong. Uh, so there's good leadership there. Retail's been very good here. Home Depot, Lowe's had strong numbers here. Diller Department Stores, TJX is breaking out to new all-time high. Signet Jewelers has been strong. So there's there's really good rotation there. Strong dollar is interesting because the dollar's moving higher because certainly there's the the, the belief that Fed's going to taper. At the same time, gold is moving higher, and that's usually very, it's very counterintuitive to see something like that happen. So that's an interesting play. Uh, everyone's uh, very excited about the whole EV market here. We've seen Lucid, you know, just gap higher to new highs um, uh, in this week here. It's, it's given a little bit back today, but Rivian has been the big story of the week. That's given some back here. Tesla is starting to turn higher near that after Elon Musk sold some stock. And so NGM hit a new all-time, a new 52-week high today as well. Ford has been trading um, at, at 52-week highs as well. So the whole EV space here is is pretty much on fire. It's, it's been doing very well. Apple's trying to trade trade higher today. It's having a good day here, up 2.3%. So people should maybe look at Apple here because iPhone demand is just huge, and that looks great. Um, and certainly last but not least is the energy space, which you noted is uh, is pulling back here on rumors that there may be some oil released out of the strategic oil reserve. Uh, that gives um, you know a chance here to maybe look at buying some of the really great oil and gas stocks on a dip. Let's talk about uh, the liquidity that you mentioned. Does that create this, uh, I don't know, maybe inflation spiral as you have more people with more money and they're out there and they're buying things? And then also when it comes to stock prices, you have more people without anything else to do with this money, so they're putting it into stocks. Well, you certainly do. That's, And you also have a rotation, too, coming out of uh, fixed income, which is, you know, there's been a lot of money buried in, in the uh, high-yield junk bond market here, certainly in treasuries and, and corporate bonds, preferreds, things of that nature here, where you're starting to see, you know, a gradual rotation away from, uh, you know, people are barbelled in, in fixed income and, and stocks, but there's just, with inflation running hot right now, uh, you know, between 5 and 6%, uh, you're looking at negative returns for cash and bonds. And so therefore, there's just until there is evidence that 
inflation is transitory, which right now it's not, then we're seeing continuation of fund flows out of fixed income into equities here trying to hedge themselves. Uh, there's still well over $3 trillion of cash just sitting on the sidelines in money markets here. And so the market hasn't really given people the kind of correction that they were hoping to, to buy the big dip, if you will. And so normally between uh, the, the end of, of earnings season here and Thanksgiving, you do get a lull, and then you start to see the Santa Claus rally start to kick in. This market's just relentless here. We're getting a pullback today of just not, it's very nominal, but again, it's most of that's on Visa. Uh, and so, you know, it's it, momentum begets momentum. And, and when you see this kind of push into the end of the year, a lot of underinvested fund managers that I noted these, these headwinds up front, they're just not having the kind of effect on the market that a lot of people were, were betting would take place. So therefore, you're kind of forced in uh, in order to, you know, have your, your a decent weighting going into what is seasonally a very good time of the year between late December, January, and February. And so that's really um, with the kind of liquidity that has been created out of a lot of QE out there. Uh, you know, our market here in the U.S. is the oasis uh, for global investing here, and this is really what's uh, what's pushing the inertia into uh, where there's just bullish um, activity, you know, daily almost here, and and with a, a series of these new highs for the major averages. Thanks so much. That's Brian Perry, senior editor at BrianPerryInvesting.com. A deposit for your future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Personal Finance Wednesday. This afternoon, we're putting the focus on young investors and teaching them good habits early in life. We're joined by Ed Jertsen, certified financial planner, founder of Engage Wealth Group, online at EngageWealthGroup.com. Uh, Ed, over the holidays here, you're going to have teens at home more opportunities to talk with them. Is that a good time to begin talking about money if you haven't already? Yeah, absolutely, Cisco. You know, sharing the gift of financial education and literacy is so important. But before we talk about the what, let's talk about why, right? So if you have an 18-year-old who contributes, let's say, $600 to a Roth IRA and adds just $100 every year, and that account just earns the average historical rate of return of the market, at age 50, that account could be worth over $32,000. That's eight times the amount of money they put in. And this is why starting so early can be so financial rewarding for the children and so what do you do if you especially the teenagers you, you have them and they're home and you're talking with them what, what's maybe the top thing you need to tell them to do when you're talking about investing well, the great place to start is is the why. So why are we trying to invest? Why are we trying to do this? And again, it's to make them more financially savvy. So talk to them about what they're interested in. What are the products they use? What are some of the stores they visit? And seeing if those if those companies are publicly traded, what a great bridge to talk about what kids are interested in and how they can potentially make money from investing in those companies. Okay, so when it comes to, I mean, because, you know, if you start talking with them about companies, eyes may glaze over because there's so many of them. Uh, what, what are some strategies for, for making it exciting and also making it something that they can understand? Yeah, again, if it's products they use on a day-to-day -day basis, things that get them excited, things on the Internet, right? So a lot of the things we use on a day-to-day -day basis and a lot of the places they go on the Internet are publicly traded companies. And so you're connecting that, hey, you'd like to use this. It's not only you that likes to use this, but potentially millions of people like to use this company. And let's start looking at different companies. And so you're not starting with a list of 7,000 companies. You're starting with a really short list of what gets them interested, and that should be able to pique their 
interest to continue down this path. And good places to start would be a Roth IRA if they have a job, right, in terms of just being able to contribute or parents setting up a joint account for their children so they have some control over it. But again, ultimately just trying to guide them on that path of, you know, this is the difference between, let's say, putting money into a savings account and putting money to work in the stock market over the long run. So uh, how do you make sure that the kids don't get in trouble with this money? I mean, is it uh, an account that the parents can have some sort of control over or or do you maybe limit the amount of money so it, it doesn't really matter what they do with it? Yeah, so children under 18, a couple of custodians have opened up what are known as teen accounts. And so the parent is still in control of that account. We're not big fans of what are known as custodial accounts, such as UTMA or UGMA, because the kids can take that money at age 21. Giving parents the control and the oversight over an account, especially at a young age, is really important. And that's why, again, a Roth IRA and or a joint account that the parents own without the children on the the account, but earmarked for that particular teen is a good way to have that parental control and guidance, but also involve the kids on a deeper level. Thanks so much. Good advice. Ed Jertsen, he's a certified financial planner, founder of Engage Wealth Group. Making sense of your dollars. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The latest report from the Global Business Travel Association indicates a slower-than-expected recovery from pandemic lows. We're joined by Joe Schwederman, professor of public services, director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul. Uh, business travel. Joe, before we find out what's going on with this, how important is business travel to the airline? You know, it is uh, really a foundation of much of the hub-and-spoke system the airlines run, and we know that business travelers uh, have been evolving. They're not uh, willing to pay any price, <laughs> like maybe 20 years ago, uh, that become more uh, price-sensitive, but they still, uh, you know, generate an outsized proportion of the airline's revenue, and for companies like United, particularly, they tend to buy up for those economy-plus seats or business-class seats at the last minute, too, and that, uh, that's a big part of the revenue picture. And so what have we seen? Obviously, everything slowed down in the pandemic. Is it picking up? Well, it is picking up. I will say, though, in the last few weeks, uh, particularly some reports that came out today from global travel surveys, there's a bit more pessimism. There's uh, phrases like, is business travel in structural decline, implying that the fundamentals uh, don't look good. And there's a a general sense that even in uh, 2023, 2024, We may have a business travel segment that's uh, perhaps 20 uh, percent smaller than pre-pandemic. You know, that said, things are really unpredictable right now. But the latest news, uh, I'd say, is a little discouraging for the big airlines. And in turning that around, it's not like it's just advertising or amenities or something like that, because you're talking about the way businesses are running themselves. And that's right. And uh, again, it was been the really long haul flights that are appear to be going first, the travel weary uh, corporate jet set crowd that's uh, enjoying uh, using Zoom and other tools. I think there is some pent up demand. That's the one good news for airlines that people have to sort of refresh their relationships. There's a lot of uh, conventions restarting up. Uh, you know, but right now we're not looking at that traditional sort of briefcase carrying business traveler uh, coming back as quickly as other segments, you know, like convention traffic and uh, mixed purpose trips where we combine business and pleasure. Things are more favorable in those latter categories. So uh, how do they go ahead and make more money? Because you can only get so much off of that, uh, that, that kind of everyday travel, the, the family and vacation travel. 
Yeah, the airlines are, the, fortunately for the airlines, I mean, the fleets they have, the uh, uh, gates at airports, so that's not terribly out of sync where they can, you know, re, uh, redirect flights. We've seen that a lot more flights going north-south and east-west now as those pleasure markets uh, really heat up. Uh, we're also seeing good demand in the real short-haul trips like Chicago-Detroit, Chicago-St. Louis. Uh, those are coming out of the pandemic really well as people kind of combine businesses' pleasure on some of those short trips. So we're seeing more of that. Uh, I think international is a real question, but, you know, November 8th, the, uh, the market did open up. So I expect to see some some real energy in the transatlantic market, uh, you know, starting uh, starting this month. Thanks so much, Joe Schwederman. He's professor of public services, director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul.